Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here, as usual. Uh, to start with, we have now announced our maddest idea ever. You've probably heard us talking about for weeks that we have a big announcement coming. Well, we have announced it now. Um, firstly, the sad news is that this year's Nine Lessons shows, which are obviously a highlight of ours and so many of your years as well, as you uh, have let us kindly know over the years, Um They've had to be cancelled because of everything, because of uh, the pandemic and whatnot. Um, There's just no way we can do those shows properly. So safety has to come first there. Um, We're gutted to have to cancel them, obviously. But rather than just fully cancel them, what we're going to do is we are going to do all of the cancelled shows in a row, live, for 24 plus hours. Uh, We're going to be broadcasting live Uh, online from King's Place. We've got remote control cameras. We're going to build a little uh, set that looks like Robin's attic, hopefully. Uh, Robin is going to be hosting the entire time, all 24 plus hours. And there's going to be loads of guests uh, and co-hosts, both uh, socially distanced in person and loads virtually from all around the world, from every that's right, every continent. Uh, so there'll be Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield, Josie Long, Helen Chersky, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Helen Sharman, Chris Jackson, Sharon D. Clark, uh, Mark Watson. Obviously, you can't do a 24-hour show without having Mark Watson involved. Uh, hundreds of guests joining us. Um, and there's also, there's going to be a very small number of socially distanced tickets available for you to join us live, uh, government guidelines uh, and, you know, general health guidelines permitting, uh, but it will all also be available to stream for free online. But there is a crowdfunder for the show. It's very important to mention that uh, the shows each year, we give all the profits for those shows to charity. We don't take any fee at all and we still want to be able to give a lot to the charities um so the crowdfunder will first will cover any costs we've got since there's no ticket sales this year uh, or very few ticket sales and then all of the profits will go to our chosen charities this year which are doctors without borders mind for better mental health turn to us which is tackling poverty in the uk and the king's place music foundation so you can go to crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons to donate. And there's like exclusive perks um, and rewards for doing that as well. And then you can find out all the info about where to stream it, get tickets, who's on the show uh, at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. It is going to be mad. It's going to be fun. Um, do join us. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us and the podcast and get extended editions each and every week. There's uh, 15 or so extra minutes of this week's conversation for Patreon supporters. And on today's episode, Robin and Josie's guest is the author of the book Men Who Hate Women From Incels to Pick Up Artists, The Truth About Extreme Misogyny and How It Affects Us All, Laura Bates. We had Laura on the show a few years ago when her book Misogynation came out, so we're really happy to have her back. 
And finally, just before we start, uh, a short warning. Due to the subjects that are covered in Laura's book, a lot of the content of this episode some people might find upsetting or triggering. So we wanted to let you know about that off the top. This episode does contain discussions about hate crimes and domestic abuse and uh, physical assault and sexual assault and rape. Uh, And so we just wanted to make you aware of that uh, before the episode begins. And now here is Robin and Josie and Laura. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. We've got someone on today who was a guest, I think probably two and a half years ago, but I might be wrong about that approximately. Um, It's flown in some ways. Yeah, it's uh, just to warn you, Josie, as someone who is considerably older than you, time does speed up. Whatever Einstein said, it's not necessarily about the speed of your movement. It really is. uh, It's terrifying. Enjoy all of those last few years you have in your 30s, because from the age of 41, all you say is, I can't remember if it was last summer or seven years ago. That's just a warning for you. (laughs) I feel Uh, that already. I keep being like, yeah, 2011. Nine years ago. Yeah, it's a, and I think also when you have a child, there is that 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 the uh, both genuine and also psychosomatic uh, pencil marks on a door, yes. where you suddenly go, oh, but he was he was eight. He's you know my 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 son's you know nearly thirteen now, and I go, but he was eight. He was eight. Um, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. Your 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 new book is as usual. It's uh it it's brilliant, and it's uncomfortable and it's necessary. Um. And I am, I mean, I think we talked about this before, but it's still, for, you were one of those people who ended up using social media for uh, tremendously kind of pragmatic purposes, useful purposes and enlightening purposes. And when you started Everyday Sexism, the idea that you would still, one, that this would mean that as an activist, what it, what it started off as a kind of, you know, a, a hashtag of enlightenment, it's it's then become such a major part of of your life and are the times when you just think i almost wish i'd never started this whole thing <laughs> um I, I think i'm getting there now <laughs> with this most recent book and some of the reaction to it having those moments of is this just too much and when do you just say it's too much um but the thing is there's always it's always offset by the positive. There are so many positives. There are so many teenagers at schools across the country who've started their own school feminist societies or started their own campaigns because they found everyday sexism on Tumblr. There are so many women who've written that they have made a complaint about workplace discrimination or that they've felt able to report a rape for the first time because it made them realize that they weren't alone. There are women in their 80s and 90s who've sent me typewritten, like on a typewriter type um, letters saying, I've carried the weight of this my whole life. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, this project let me realise that I wasn't on my own and it wasn't actually my fault after decades of thinking that I brought this on myself. So those things keep you going, I think, don't they? And, And with this book in particular, it really feels, the only way I can describe it is that it feels like watching this meteorite speeding towards us, this world of hatred that is literally killing women and potentially having a massive impact on teenage boys and on women's lives. And no one seems to know about it. No one outside of my kind of small feminist internet bubble 
had ever heard of incels. When I talked to my dad about the book, he'd never heard of incels. The vast majority of people I spoke to when I was working on this said, in what? And someone thought it was a kind of battery. Someone else thought that I moved into microbiology. Um, and it's like you can see this thing happening, this devastating thing, and no one knows about it. So that's quite a powerful motivator, I think, because you feel like you can't just sit there seeing it speed towards us and not say anything. You kind of have to have to talk about it. That does seem to it on in many different kind of uh, words of, of extremist thought. That is a fascinating thing you're saying, which is there are lots of things in in our world which we think everyone knows about, and mm -hmm. most people don't know about it. And actually, and that means there is a, a radicalization. And I think incels, it's fair to say, is a radicalization in in, uh, in that is both in plain sight and yes. yet hidden to the majority of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's partly hidden because we don't acknowledge misogyny and violence against women. Just look at the current backlash against the proposals to record it as a hate crime to see that we don't take it seriously. But I mean, it was really shocking for this book because I was speaking to people who really should know about it. You know, I was ringing up counter-terror organisations, pretty high level. And when I said the word incel, there'd be this long pause on the end of the phone and they'd say, sorry, what in, can you spell that? And then they'd ring me back a few days later and say, we, uh, we don't have any data on that at present. It, it's really amazing. Or I accessed some of the um, a US report, US government report that was about looking at their dealings with terrorism and their response to it and it was kind of assessing how effectively they dealt with it and they had all these tables about the murders that have been carried out in in the name of terrorist ideologies during the period of this report and the murders that had been carried out in the name of incels of violent hatred of women which numbered in their dozens during this particular period of this report just weren't there and when I looked into it they were tracking and looking at their response to animal rights extremists uh, people with extreme views on abortion, um, who this, the numbers in the table for that period were zero. No one had died in the names of those ideologies during that period. But this wasn't even on the table, so it wasn't even on the radar. And you've got you've got examples of, of in the Toronto van attack, for example, men who have gone out and massacred people. Alec Manassian, he killed 10 people, he injured dozens more with his van deliberately driving into them, the vast majority of them women and he said the incel rebellion has begun on Facebook before he started then he was arrested and he described to the officers in his arrest video which you can watch online his radicalization online into this ideology and how he had carried this out because he wanted to kill women it was completely clear and then you've got the the police reports of the police chief coming out to the press and saying there's no indication of terrorism in this and the city is safe so it's it's literally terrorism by any international definition of terrorism. And then you've got the police, the justice system, the media, none of them using the word terrorism to describe it. And then, like you said, Robin, radicalization, you've got this crazy situation where I'm meeting boys in schools across the country who have been so radicalized by these ideas that they genuinely believe for example, that 90% of rape allegations are false, that they as a man are at really high risk of being accused falsely of rape. They think that that is going to happen to them. And no one is talking about it or no one's aware of the fact that they're being radicalised, even though that, of course, that's what it is. It's grooming and it's being done really carefully and deliberately. They're going to gaming websites and bodybuilding platforms. They're finding these boys. 
And it's not just me anecdotally saying I've met a few boys. I spoke to the Good Lad Initiative, which is probably the biggest organisation talking to teenage boys about this stuff across the country. And their lead facilitator told me he would estimate 70% of the boys that he's seen in schools have con come into contact with this material. But he also said he feels that teachers, parents have no idea it even exists. It's it's so weird. So, jo sorry, Josie, yeah. Do you, like, okay, this is going to sound silly, but the thing that I take consolation in sometimes is the fact that online platforms themselves have a relatively short life and almost like the cultures that happen explode within an online platform, then that platform itself becomes obsolete, becomes unfashionable, and a new one arrives, which often has a completely different style or culture to it. Like, am I being really naive in being, because the, genuinely the way I feel is like, well YouTube yes that's hellish and has radicalized people but TikTok that's great and, and like is is that just me clinging on to things so that I can sleep at night I think it might be oh god <laughs> well what I've seen is that it's it's so diverse that they, they have such a diverse portfolio of online real estate that it kind of doesn't matter if they lose grip in one particular space or if one particular space becomes obsolete so infiltrating this network, I knew it existed because I'm a woman online who talks about feminism. Sure. But I had no idea the extent of it. And the it, so it's websites, it's blogs, it's forums, it's social media spaces, it's vlogs, it's communities. And it's so it's so sprawling that a really good example of this, I think, is that there was a, a very well-known website, which I describe in the book, which turned out to be owned by a congressional candidate in the United States. You know, these men who are not the kind of bridge-dwelling trolls that we'd like to think who don't have any offline influence. It was obsessed with kind of rape and discussing and um, inciting rape of women, but also with paedophilia. And when I wrote the book, that particular website had been taken down, but I've been contacted since the book was published um, by a parent whose daughter's photographs have been added to this incel website by people saying, shall I rape her? And when I looked into it, it is clearly a reincarnation of that same original website. And I mean, it is built into their DNA now. They're so used to the kind of internet game of whack-a-mole that they sometimes get closed down, that if you look at any one of these major communities, the first thing that they will say is, if we get shut down, here's our three alternative websites that we've already set up to reboot ourselves. So it's now so common that I think they're kind of playing that game already. And the communities are so dedicated. These are such um, very, very passionate and committed communities of people that they will kind of follow and reincarnate wherever if they get shut down in one place they just pop up somewhere else do you feel like it is a kind of energy that like how do how do you counteract that because you know when I think about ideologies that I like like so when I think about people who are socialists like it's a, it's about sort of going you can't shut that idea down because that idea will always appeal to people. Yes. But with something like this, I can see completely in a sort of through the looking glass horrific way that there will always be people out there who are vulnerable for whom like violent and hateful ideologies will appeal to. To whom? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the answer is supporting those vulnerable people better than our society does at the moment. Because you can see that these online hate movements are very appealing and seductive because they provide a safe place. They provide a community. They provide what feels like a safe place, I should say. It isn't a safe place. But they provide this sense of belonging, this sense of, you know, somebody listening to you, this sense of community, a sense of being part of a bigger purpose than yourself. All of this stuff for young people, which might have been provided by the 600 youth centres that have been closed down in the last decade, um, the youth funding that's been absolutely slashed, providing young men in particular, I think, with some that they can gather and feel that sense of belonging and community offline would be one really powerful way to combat this. But also, ironically, to really tackle, properly to tackle the problems that these communities pay lip service to. So they'll talk about the male mental health crisis and then do absolutely nothing to solve it. In fact, they make it much worse because these communities double down on exactly the kind of toxic stereotypes and pressures that are harming men in the first place. Well, it's like pro-life is saying how much they love children and doing fuck all to support people who are struggling to bring up their children. But we could, if we wanted to try and kind of cut off the lifeblood of these communities, then actually tackling the male mental health crisis would be a really powerful way to do it. But then how do we cope when society is forced so much indoors and online due to the pandemic? Like, Have you seen things shift as a result of that? I think it's a real risk and I'm certainly being contacted by parents since the books come out who are really concerned about their children being radicalised at the moment with the extent of the time that they're spending online and obviously through no fault of parents who are in an impossible position desperately trying to juggle their jobs and their children Um, but I've heard from parents in the last week who have been desperately worried about their children being radicalised in this way coming out with really extreme and horrifying stuff some of whom have even contacted social services and literally have been told almost word for word, if it were ISIS, we'd be interested, but we can't help you with this. I mean, it's... This is the thing with the far right as well. Like, it's not taken seriously as a threat at all. Like, and and instead, all of the focus is on, like... Islamistic. I'm so shocked. And this is also completely intertwined with the far right in ways that I think Mm -hmm. people don't understand. We think of them as these two separate problems. But if you look into it, the far right is actively and deliberately seeing extremist misogyny as a gateway to draw young people into white supremacy and neo-Nazi movements. They talk about using memes and jokes and viral videos as adding cherry flavour to children's medicine. They are very deliberately using these things to get at children as young as 11. And if you look at something like, you know, the manifesto of Anders Breivik, for example, started with the three sentences, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates. The white supremacists are obsessed with this idea of what they call replacement theory, the idea that invading hordes of non-white men are plundering this dehumanised commodity of fragile white women. And they believe that white women should be kept as sex slaves to create this master race. They believe that black women should be forcibly sterilised. It is utterly predicated on extreme misogyny. And in the same way, the incel movement and the extremist misogynistic movements are obsessed not only with the idea that women aren't sleeping with them, but specifically that women are sleeping with black men, for example. So there is enormous racism tied up in this that you can't disentangle, just as there's massive misogyny tied up in white supremacy that you can't disentangle. And we've got to get better at seeing those ideologies as connected, 
but also at realizing that they are part of extreme emotion just as much as the other things that we do overzealously look at. You know, prevent, for example, has been accused of being, you know, divisive and overzealous. And there was that story about the the boy who was questioned by police because he made a spelling mistake in class. I think he was, I don't know, 11 or 12. And he wrote that he lived in a terrorist house when he meant a terrorist house and ended up him and his family being questioned by police. And yet here's this other form of extremism that is actually affecting teenage boys across the country and it doesn't even seem to be on the radar. There's no mention of gender at all in the kind of headline prevent guidance for schools and it certainly doesn't mention any of these ideologies. Is that part, I mean, that that becomes a huge problem of what news itself is. News is novelty and therefore all of those different uh, trials uh, for rape that uh, that that person is found guilty. That's not a news story. There's so many of them that it's not a news story. So the news story is always the outlier. So that's why we end up, or not always. That's that's obviously exactly. But very often it will be this is a story which has novelty, and then the story that actually has novelty becomes believed to be just the way things are, and that kind of contradiction means that that's a tremendous problem with what news is meant to represent and how it monetizes itself and how it gets clicks. And all of those things seem to feed into um, false impressions of reality. Definitely. But I think there's also a particular um, angle with this particular kind of news story, which is that they know that they'll get a huge amount of clicks and outrage and online shares because of the fact that this particular novelty issue is one that receives this kind of response think that as kind of print media dies and online media is desperate for clickbait essentially they need clicks and eyeballs on on adverts they go for things that they know will be framed and as controversy and get people whipped up and outraged and so I think the whole media perception and presentation of feminism is done in a way that is all about getting people as outraged as possible so they're not reporting about the tiny and dramatic low rate of rape convictions but they will ask if you'll come on to debate Kleenex man-sized tissues and whether it's sexist to call them man-sized. I've got emails in my inbox asking me to come on for a live TV debate about whether man flu is fact or fiction, about whether men working overhead sign is sexist, about bloody Kleenex, and yet you can't get them to cover period poverty or the detention of refugee women. Because they know that if you if you portray feminism as this kind of hysterical, whining, privileged obsession over tiny, tiny issues, then you'll get these communities responding in force, which they do. And so the media portrayal of all of this stuff, I think, is is often very skewed. And that doesn't help at all because it plays right into the hands of these men who are online telling teenage boys, you know, look, there's this ridiculous hate movement that's trying to strip men of their rights and women have got nothing really to moan about except tissues that are too big for their hands <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you do you think that there's i mean how have you watched uh, is there a change because I'm, I'm fascinated from both of you to uh, if you can where well, you believe that there does seem to be that it's so easy to twist men into hating women as you see you know th- this book has that what it is, what it is in, in, in our psychological makeup that means so often the enemies will become the opposite sex, will become women. I don't think it's anything inherent or biological. I think it's just the society around us. And I think that hatred takes many different forms as well. 
because I think like there's a whole chapter of the book called men who are afraid of women and I think a lot of hate comes down to fear if you can make people afraid of something then you can make them hate it and it's the same it's the same line of attack that sees people whipping up anti-immigrant sentiment by uh, suggesting this kind of fear that immigrants are taking your job it, it it's this idea that you should be afraid of something and fear then turns into hatred um, but I think it's I think it's also really important to say that, you know, the book isn't called Men Hate Women. It's called Men Who Hate Women. And mm. it also there are so many brilliant men who don't hate women and are actually on the front lines as part of the fight against this going on. So I don't think it's anything inherent. But actually, I think the answer perhaps about why it's so easy to do this is because it's really easy to make people hate an other, something that they don't know. And if you look at de-radicalization organizations, none of which exist for this specific problem, but if you look at the ones that deal with neo-Nazism and the alt-right, there's um, a really interesting thing where one of the best ways to de-radicalize someone is to force them to get to know the people that they've been brainwashed to think are these kind of extreme monsters. And I think that's really pertinent to this subject in terms of the fact that we're encouraging men and boys to dehumanize women, to dehumanize their female peers, to the extent that in these hundreds of thousands of strong communities of incels, they don't use the word women, they use the word foid, which stands for female humanoid, because they don't think that women are real people, or that they should have rights, or that they have ideas or feelings, they really see them as objects. And it's easy to brainwash teenage boys into thinking about their female peers in that way because they don't necessarily connect with them. And when I talk about this, people say, but that's so different because other extremist groups get turned against groups that they don't have any contact with. But boys and girls grow up together and go to school together. And that's true. But actually, I was at a, a roundtable meeting about education and sexism recently, and I was sitting next to a, a young Muslim teacher. And she said, in my classroom of six and seven year olds, if the kids were segregating themselves every day, according to race or religion, we would consider it an emergency in the school and tackle it. But every day when my kids line up to go to lunch, the girls are on one side in a group and the boys are on the other side in a group. When they have parties, they get the pink princess invitations from oh. the news agent, and they don't invite the boys and the boys don't invite the girls and it's oh, not seen as a problem because it's encouraged right yeah say, well you know of course girls are interested in those things and girls will be friends with girls and by the age of about six or seven mixed sex friendships start to drop off to and it's all so dull like <laughs> do are so boring and like commodified and crap yeah. oh my god but it means you can dehumanize girls because teenage boys don't know them because they're not encouraged to have friendships with them and if they do even from the age of going to a toddler play group and your toddler sits now next to another toddler and people go oh look they're on their first date oh, she's going to be a heartbreaker lock up your daughters he's coming so we sexualize and stigmatize mixed sex friendships in front of children openly and i I'm think so that that's a big issue here my daughter's got a little friend who's a boy and obviously we've never thought to do that <laughs> <laughs> thank god <laughs> they just hang out and play <laughs> um god it's frightening like and it's so funny because i think unless people can appreciate that different things feed into one another it's hard to get a handle on it because like yeah seemingly very innocuous things can still add weight to the sentiment or to the discourse oh and then so how have you done how does this impact young women and their behavior like what's the counteraction like how do young women react when their peers are behaving in this way 
In my experience, they shut down and they go quiet. So I've been to schools, for example, where I've done like a lunchtime session with just the girls, where the girls have flooded in and just poured out their experiences of sexual violence, of sexual harassment, of sexism. And then you go into the mixed session after lunch and the boys are sitting there going, this is all nonsense and I don't believe any of it. And the girls are silent, absolutely silent. There was one school where there was one really brave girl who put her hand up and I asked if anyone was a feminist and she was the only one in the room. And she gave these incredibly nuanced and calm arguments about, you know, for example, how maternity leave benefits everyone in society because we're all gaining from people procreating. So it should be built into our society. And after I left, she sent me an email with some text messages in that she'd received from the boys afterwards saying, you know, things like it's not our fault. We're biologically superior to you. You need to shut up and deal with it. You just need to learn that your place is in the kitchen. You know, um, you're just mad at men because you're a slut who's changed your mind. This was a girl who'd been sexually assaulted. It's just it. it's really hard for girls at school to talk about this stuff because we're perceive that girls are in this brilliant age where they can do anything they want to do and they're outperforming boys at school and feminism is suddenly in the spotlight but the truth is for girls at school talking about feminism is still incredibly difficult and this stuff is affecting them because the boys in their year are going online they're being targeted for example on a bodybuilding website and on even a really innocuous looking bodybuilding website there are thousands of these threads that are actually about incel ideology or about pickup artistry and a 14 year old boy who is just anxious and has understandable vulnerabilities has typed for example um how do i talk to a girl of my own age and underneath one of the first comments from an older man says rape it so their ideas about how they should treat the girls that they know and interact with are being so affected by what's online and the girls are aware of that but don't really have an outlet to know how to tackle it or what to do about it and when they do talk about it they're liable to be told oh boys will be boys or he just likes you or, were you wearing a short skirt that day <laughs> it is yes fascinating that it's just that the things haven't moved necessarily in the direction that we would have imagined uh in the time this and and yeah, i think a lot of your work has really you know opened that up the, what what i mean i i still feel that a lot of it seems to be down or to that fear of shame turns into hate you know mm -hmm. that 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 fear where someone goes up to someone that if you're turned down you turn that straight into hate and it seems that in certainly in cells some of the things i mean i was very interested in the book where you talk to a, a, a young man who kind of was radicalized in, into that world and then had a moment a part of that i think was meeting a, a, a woman and uh, starting a relationship and he went hang on a minute what the hell was so can you tell us a little bit about his his change from being a you know a young boy teenager yeah. gets caught up in that world and then he's one of the examples in the book of someone who then through the oxygen of actually meeting and talking and you know he goes well, hang on a minute this is nonsense yeah I mean he's a really good example actually because at the age of 17 or 18 he'd become so um, radicalized that he really believed that he had to have no contact with a woman at all he was a member of one of the groups I look at in the book called men going their own way who oh, believe that it's not safe to even have any contact with a woman whatsoever because they're so dangerous and he was really confident he was kind of a leading figure in the movement and then he literally met a girl who started just asking questions about it and asking questions like really simply. So hang on a minute, you're telling me this is a group of men who believe that women are so toxic and dangerous that they should cut them out of their lives altogether. 
who spend their entire lives online talking about women. <laughs> like that does not add up. If you you either are shooing women all together or you're obsessed with them, but it can't you get can't a boat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it has to question it. I think, and at that point, he was able to break out of it through making a real personal relationship with a girl who obviously embodied none of the characteristics that he had been groomed to believe were universal to all women. So there's another really interesting story in the book about this other guy who was radicalized and he told me he was 11 when he first started getting into this stuff and he describes really well how it happened really slowly it started through kind of generic message boards and jokes and racist memes and kind of it was so drip drip that by the time he found the incel community at about 14 it didn't seem extreme to him because he'd so gradually been desensitized to it but he still believed that it was kind of a community of men who were sort of sounding off and sort of letting off steam. And when the Toronto van attack happened, this guy was shocked to see the media saying that this man had been a member of an incel community. And he went out and started doing all these media interviews saying, you know, incels aren't bad, like you're smearing us all with the same brush. And actually, you know, this is about men supporting other men and it's a, it's a support community. And we don't all think all women should die and hate all women. And he got bombarded with abuse, which he had anticipated, but not from the corner he'd anticipated, which was kind of feminist in the mainstream. He got it from other incels who were outraged that he was misrepresenting them on the world mm. stage, saying, we do hate all women. We do think that all women should die. Like, stop trying to tell people that we're not like that. And that, for him, shocked him out of it. But I think, and some people will come out of this naturally, not everybody that gets sucked into these communities is going to go out and kill people, but a significant number of them have. So it's about kind of looking at how do we provide that other perspective? And we're failing boys at the moment, I think, in that we talk about a lot of the problems with masculinity, but we, we're not very good yet at creating role modeling, alternative forms of masculinity, although there are individual men who are doing that really well. And that's where I think men and boys can be part of this because men often say to me, what can we do? We you know what's our role in this and actually role modeling other ways of being a man and other diverse forms of masculinity that don't have to be predicated on power and sexual control and total uh, dominance over women essentially would really help. And that's something men can do. I, I suppose the thing that can that gives me consolation is that like the reason these things are so dangerous is because they're not based in reality and reality has a bias towards the humane and against this kind of stuff like if these things were real uh, what I mean by that is if their perception of the world were the truth of how people are mm. then it wouldn't be a fringe ideology it would be a terrifying hellscape of real everyone <laughs> um, so what I mean is the thing that gives me some consolation is is as you say like when people are actually exposed to reality as opposed to this kind of cult, it can bring them out of it. Yeah, hopefully. Although they are just so clever. They're so good at what they do and how they do it. And they're so aided and bettered at the moment by the mainstream media, by politicians, by kind of um, pop figure, pop culture figures, mm. um, that it makes it easier for them to really convince people of it, I think. It's also appealing. I think that it's like because Robin asked that question about, um, you know, is it kind of why do men do this? Like, why do they? And and it makes me think about how when you're 
taught this like stratified version of society you don't even realize that you're mainly picking on women or women of color mm-hmm. like I, I I think a lot about the abuse that Diane Abbott gets and lots of the people that abuse her will say no 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 I'm just abusing her because she's the worst one and it's like they don't examine why they might have come to the belief that she in particular is so much worse than her white and male and white male counterparts and it's like underwritten is this system that is so pernicious that kind of the results of it people have so kind of swallowed down that they don't even question why they're sort of participating in it yes that is so true and you're right so many people would say that about diane abbott and then it helps if you have the statistics i think then so yeah. you can say to them well actually she's the fucking then? best and the don <laughs> but also isn't it a coincidence that over half of all the abuse sent to female MPs in the run-up to the election when Amnesty International studied it was all sent to Diane Abbott alone. And you can't all just happen to be picking on her because you don't think that she's a very good politician. And then you kind of force people to realise their racism and sexism that they might not even have realised themselves. You're right, I think it's just so, it's so ingrained and it's so drip, drip, drip from so many different sources all around us. Mm-hmm. What you said earlier, Josie, about the tiny things all adding up is just so true and it's so hard to get people to see that because if you come away from this and someone goes oh my gosh Laura Bates thinks that princess party invitations are the reason why all of the problems in the world are happening no obviously not but I genuinely think that each one of those tiny things adds up to the whole picture so we've got to be able to talk about them even if they seem minor so true sometimes when you're when we're dealing with our own children that's you know a lot of people who think they already think about this they're trying to find ways to do that but then you have the other problem which is how do you sometimes address it when it's other people's children and indeed then to to hell with it being children how do we address it more and more with other friends you Mm. know for instance with and i know this is one of the which is it's it's very embarrassing someone does a joke and it's kind of a joke you think oh that's not right but you think oh i don't want to i don't want to look like i'm you know sitting on a high horse and so very often we let a lot of things pass, which, again, as you said, it's not like this is the main issue, but it's an undercurrent of a culture and of expectations. And have you learned... Robin, more- be like me. Just just lose a lot of friendly acquaintances. <laughs> just make everyone think of the family. I stopped friends ages ago. It's an absolute pain. That's like, I've got a telescope now. The stars are my friends. Um <laughs> But Arthur, I'm 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 interested in, in in with each book you've written, if you've found different techniques about how we can sometimes just say to people, do you know what? Ah, that's not great. That's not a great way yeah. to Yeah. I think there's loads of different techniques actually, and I have started kind of picking finding them and slowly, and it's really different ones for different situations. Often I think it's about what you said earlier about shame. The thing people are most afraid of is being accused of being a bad person. They immediately, there is a knee-jerk defensive reaction against that that shuts down um, any kind of useful conversation. So one thing often I think is not doing it in front of anybody else because anybody that's picked up on something in front of other people is immediately so, so focused on saving face that they can't hear what you're saying. So rather than kind of interrupting them in the middle of the dinner party, talking to them about it afterwards can be one solution and focusing on the thing that they said rather than the idea that it's about them as a person, you know? So you have made this comment that I think actually was a real problem rather than I think you're a misogynist. Sometimes humour is a really good way to deal with it. My, my husband has this thing he does when we're at parties where 
um, that, for example, we were at a, like a drinks, New Year's Eve drinks thing or Christmas Eve drinks thing once. And a friend of one of my parents said to him, how do you cope being married to her? Like, isn't it just horrific? And he just looked at him and said, well, I'm tied up in the basement most of the time, so I don't really get to, you know, say anything. And it just made it just like obvious how ridiculous it was what he was saying. And he said afterwards, he thought about it and he was like, in his mind, he was scrolling through responses. And what he really wanted to say was like, I'm really happy. <laughs> like, <I'm laughs> life. But he thought in that particular situation, like just trying to kind of like make a joke of it, helped to kind of like show the absurdity of it. Or my favourite one is asking people to explain sexist or racist jokes, like pretending that you don't get it. And the more that you make them explain it and the more that they have to be like, well, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, because women can't drive. And you're like, oh, I don't get it. And they're like, you know, because women's brains or whatever it is, the more yeah. that they try to explain it, the more they dig themselves into a hole. That's quite a good one, I think. That's but, such a good one. Just being like, <laughs> oh, I don't get the joke. Yeah. No, like, I don't get it. Explain it. Go on, go on, explain it. But honestly, I think the truth is it's really hard. It's really hard to unpick it once it's ingrained and normal. And actually, that's why I think talking to young people in a way that encourages them to make their own minds up. You know, I'm not talking about indoctrinating them. I'm talking about giving them space to discuss things that they otherwise receive as just fact giving them space to reflect on how gender stereotyping manifests itself in the world around them and how it affects them, whatever gender they are as a young person, um, and, and giving them the space to talk about anxieties that might otherwise be quite easily manipulated into fear and hatred. And so for me, it's about schools and about supporting schools to do this, or supporting external organisations like the Good Lad Initiative, which is absolutely fantastic and it sends young cool men into schools to talk to boys who will look up to them and relate to them in a way that doesn't judge them or kind of you know browbeat them but gives them space to explore these ideas and that I think that's really important. Oh this is the book I recommended Mask Off by JJ Barr. Oh um, brilliant. And I just go through and um like this is what I love about it. It's got loads of very short, very interesting um, little parts all the way through. But it's Johnny's book. Write that well. down. That looks amazing. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Oh, Laura, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I would, uh, uh, as you said, it's men who hate women. It's not men hate women, and it is, uh, and it's a very again as as usual with all your stuff. It's 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 the, the it's it's tremendously fair in the way that it looks at our relationships and the problems in our and our relationships. And it is it's like we were talking before about Joan Smith's book Homegrown. It's 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 the right kind of disturbing. It's that thing which just uh, does kick you a little bit. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 actually, I'd not, because it's very easy, I think, to, uh, well, as you said, to not see these things at all, to mm -hmm. actually, you, you can turn in a certain direction and, and ignore it. Well, and also, that would be nicer not to have them in the world. Like, it's a very human response to be like, oh, no, I'll just hope that that goes away. <laughs> like, yeah. of course you don't want it to. Okay. And also, it is to be honest, insults has not been for me personally, is uh, is not a great terminology because uh, it's just too close. The two things: one, when I saw insult turning up, and ints doesn't get used very much anyway, so that's a disaster. <laughs> and then it's like the the time where with uh, another mistake that was made was um, uh, 
with Grace Petrie. Someone w- w- once went. Grace Petrie was. Uh, she was walking towards her gig in. I think it was at Latitude. A gig in the gig in the woods there. And someone was going. Well, I, d- I don't know how she can work with that guy because I, it just really disgusts me. And it, uh, to be honest, it's the one thing that really lets me down. And they were talking about me, right? And it turns out that I had been confused with Robin Thick. <gasps> the. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so there we are, Robin Thicke and these, these um, I'm, I'm so many things that I'm not. Um, Sorry, Robin. <laughs> but no, it is men, many, many hate women. I, I, I read it over the summer and it was, uh, and it was, and it's great. And it's, it's uh, all your, all your books. I'd recommend everyone to go back and there's that. Well, I forget now the title, your collection of journalism as well, which I read a while ago, which is. Imagination. Uh, yeah, that was, that's really great. Um, also. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, can I, oh, we should ask you actually, what books would you, have you been enjoying? Let's just find out that uh, it, of um, other people's work. Oh, at the moment, I've been really going in for escapism. I'm afraid because this has been so difficult and horrible. Um, and I've been I've been going down this real kind of little little rabbit hole of um, women's retellings of uh, classical mythology from kind of female perspectives that haven't necessarily been told before. So Natalie Haynes her books but also have been just absolutely loving Madeline Miller and her writing recently I would definitely recommend both of them for just incredibly richly conjured worlds and and just wonderful escapism at a very difficult time for everybody Pandora's Jar that's the new Natalie that's Haynes right, one, her new it one. Sounds yes. great she it was does. she was t- talking about that with us a, a, a while ago, just about again. Or uh, I mean, that's just such a fascinating thing, isn't it? This revisit. Um, I mean, we, we've got Hallie Rubenhold on uh, soon, who you know her book, The Five, which is yeah. you know all about the the, the victims of, of Jack the Ripper. And I, I watched her speak a while ago, at Five by Fifteen, and it's just such an interesting thing. Where, as you said, what we believe to be normal culture and normal society, and then you find out the way that so many stories involving women get rewritten so many of the artists and the creatives so many of the victims of crime so all of that did you ever read deborah delano's book um i'm gonna forget the title of it now but it's it's uh you remember deborah delano uh josie who wrote that it's a novel it's a fiction based kind of around the the yorkshire ripper and it's very much for the from the perspective of the victims and it is, uh, I'm sorry that I can't remember the title. It's such yeah, an interesting novel in terms of just of, of humanising what so often are merely the props within mm. uh, a, a, a story. I, I, what's really sort of heartening in some ways, I've definitely seen that happen of late in the news media. I've seen the focus being taken away from the perpetrators and onto the victims in a way that is, I think correct and appropriate and i'll just say by the way deborah's book is uh, the saddest sound is the one that i was mentioning that which i think was her first novel thanks very much laura thank uh, you so much i know i wanted to ask you how you are josie am i allowed to do that are we still recording or can i ask oh, stop here. that's fine we'll just say i'll tell you what we'll, yeah, say. So, uh, look, we'll, we'll just do an end and then then you keep talking there we go so men who hate women laura bates uh it is available now and uh uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much to our producer, Trent Burton. And uh, thanks very much to Laura and Josie. And thanks very much for everyone who supports us via Patreon. If you can support us via Patreon, it makes a huge difference. None of us are out on tours anymore. Oh, uh, all we do. Oh, for the foreseeable. Oh, foreseeable future, <laughs> yes.
Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us and get extended editions. Don't forget to like and rate, uh, review five stars on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed today's show. If you didn't enjoy the show or the, the show overall, don't don't go and rate and review it or do it um, ironically and give it five stars. Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People. We have announced it. It is 24 hours long. CosmicChambles.com slash Nine Lessons is where you can find out all the details. Back next week with another new episode. And appropriately, since we just announced the 24-hour show, our guest is Mark Watson. Until then, take care, stay safe. See you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.